Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to share tips and tricks about handling the TV writing industry from managing contacts and representation to juggling projects and dealing with staffing and writer's room red flags. Yeah, and this is a companion to our PT93 tips and tricks for TV writing, where we troubleshot common problems in writing your scripts and how to solve them. So now we're looking to do the same thing, but for the business side of TV. All right, first up, we're going to look at different problems and solutions regarding networking, managing contacts, and uh, relationships in this fraught industry. First off, let's talk about a common problem, which is I just don't know enough people in this industry. How do I go about solving that? For most of us, we start off not really knowing anyone in LA or in the entertainment industry, unless, of course, you grew up here and you already have those built-in networks from college or from friends or family. It's a very common problem to have. And I guess the solution to that problem depends really on whether you are living here and sort of making a go of it or whether you are still somewhere else. And of course, that's going to inform exactly how you go about meeting more people. Absolutely. And to that idea, I mean, uh, this is obviously a classic topic that we've covered a few times, notably in our fifth episode, that was a networking one-to-one. And to go back to your point, Nick, I mean, the fact that you live in LA or you're outside of the city is a, a huge factor in terms of making those connections. That said, I feel like even if you're not in the city itself, you can definitely start building relationships online, especially now in the era of Twitter and social media, you can start those relationships and those discussions online. And maybe who knows? you can slide into a shortener's DM. Well, maybe not the first message, (laughs) but definitely at least entertain those conversations with those people. And then in terms of on the local level in LA, on top of Twitter and so forth, you can attend plenty of networking events. And to me, it always comes down to building actual relationships. I think that's the biggest part in quote unquote networking is it's not about what you can do for me and what I can do for you. It's more so, hey, you seem like an interesting person. We have the same uh, interest. Let's bond over those things and let's build an actual relationship and friendship as opposed to something that's more cold-hearted and business-oriented. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that exactly to your point, Alex, that leads into another problem we often hear about, which is that your contacts can't or won't help you. And I think that that is in large part to your own mindset. It's not really like, what can people do for me? It's what are these genuine relationships I can form? And then eventually things will come of that. It should often be more, what can I do for other people? How can I make myself valuable to them so that they want to help me in return rather than what can I get out of this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that personally, I've definitely been in the position where I feel like I bonded with someone or we had some kind of relationship. And then ultimately, that relationship didn't really necessarily translate to something job wise or uh, TV uh, writing wise. But what you got to keep in mind is everybody is sort of like doing their own little like, right race. They're in their little wheel and thinking about their own problems. So it's not necessarily that someone is ghosting you per se, or not responding to you in a timely manner. It's probably because they're busy with their own projects. So if you are someone who you feel like, oh, you're being ghosted or something that you asked them to do is not being done, I mean, I would just follow up with them respectfully. And uh, we'll talk more about that later in this uh, episode. But just generally, I feel like this idea that my contacts are not really helping me or not doing anything for me, I think that can be a very toxic mentality. I feel like we've both been guilty of that uh, ourselves uh, on some level. But just generally, it's definitely important to 
ground yourself back to the idea of, you know, it's a career, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. So all the contacts that you're building, all those relationships, they're meant to be actual relationships, not some sort of like end game that's going to, you know, next year in February of 2025, I'm going to be staffed because this one person I met at this mixer is going to get me there. Right, exactly. It helps not to have all your hopes riding on one particular thing. It's just naturally organically building those relationships and just seeing what happens. And like Alex said earlier, if you're looking for practical advice on exactly where to go and how to meet people, whether online or in person, you can go back to our early episodes on how to meet people in LA and networking 101, 201, all of that kind of thing, where we'll like kind of walk you through step by step the practicalities of that. And in addition to everything that we said, I also feel like it's important to build sort of like a holistic community of people at different levels. So that way, it doesn't have to be just your peers. Obviously, ideally, the goal would be, oh, I have many friends at my level, and then we all rise up together, and then they're going to help me in the same way that I can help them. But similarly, I think it's important to sort of branch out from that mentality and talk with higher levels and mid-levels and even lower levels, regardless of your position. Even if you're a staff writer, a mid-level writer, it's always good to foster those relationships, even with people below you, whether that's like an assistant or or a staff writer or an ESC, whatever the case may be, I really believe that it's important to have sort of like a holistic global perspective on those relationships instead of targeting, oh, I need to meet the most senior person I can to get me further in my career. Yeah. And on that topic of kind of getting to know people at different levels, another problem or question that people often have is how do I get to know working writers and showrunners in those positions? Absolutely. And that ties back to what I just said in terms of forming that holistic perspective and uh, bridging those gaps that you may have in your arsenal of relationships in terms of practically getting to know working writers and showrunners on top of those events that we mentioned i feel like people don't take advantage of for example if they're in the guild a lot of people don't attend guild events if you're in any kind of union you should be bonding with the people in your union that's how you build bridges in the same capacity if you're a writer's assistant or a script coordinator you can attend iatsi events there's like plenty of facebook groups that are assistant type positions and, and, and people at that level now in terms of getting to know them beyond the practical reality of it on top of Twitter, I feel like if you are in a position where you're on staff, then you can start building those relationships and branch out. So let's say you are either a staff writer or maybe a writer's assistant on uh, an existing show. You can maybe ask at some point when production isn't uh, insane, one of the writers for coffee, and then you can build that relationship. And then off of that, you can say, hey, uh, I noticed that you know so-and-so and I'm a huge fan of their work or I write genre pieces and I feel like they would be really interesting to talk with about uh, these specific things. And that's the way essentially to branch out those relationships is not just to focus on the one or two people that are around you, but to ask them for recommendations in that capacity as well. Yeah, for sure. I think just kind of for someone showing up to LA with no real connections, it is going to be tricky for you to just be able to walk into a room with a number of working writers and high-level writers and showrunners. And I don't think that that should be the expectation right away. But like Alex said, there are a number of events where you can have the opportunity to meet those people. There are so many of these like, Twitter mixers being organized now, especially with the whole kind of, you know, WGA staffing boost. I think there's been a real equalization of the playing field in terms of like who you can meet and where. So it's, it's important to be on top of those and show up to those events. I think that you can get to know people through your writers groups, through just interacting and having fun on Twitter. And even if you're not a member of a particular guild or union or whatever, you can often go along as somebody's guest. So 
if you get to know somebody and they're going to a Writers Guild event or they're going to an Emmys FYC event, you might be lucky enough that, you know, it's a show that you love and they will bring you along to that. And that's a really great way to meet people there as well. So you don't have to necessarily be already established yourself to be in the same room as these people. But I think it's also important once you're there to know how to treat them and to not necessarily act like a rabid fan around them to try and operate on the level of peers or one day, you know, being able to work with these people so that you're not acting like you would at like a convention where someone's signing something for you. Definitely. And to your point about this equalization of networking, I definitely feel like there's been a level of access that is sort of unprecedented where now we can actually talk with showrunners, EPs, and even executives at uh, studios and networks now in a way that 10, 15, 20 years ago wasn't really a possibility. And that's in part because of social media, it's in part because of the growing amount of events that exist. And uh, again, to your point about going to those events and talking to the people there, I mean, if you go to any event, whether it's an FYC event or the uh, Guild Mixer, you can meet so many people that you would not necessarily be able to meet in any other context. You know, you're not going to run into someone who uh, works in that capacity by just going to Ralph's. I mean, you could, but that's like a sort of like a terrible way of meeting uh, industry people. But if you are actually targeted and and you're saying, okay, so what's the Venn diagram between sort of uh, people who attend WGA events and working TV writers? It's almost like a circle because it just overlaps. So if you are a little bit strategic about the places that you go to to meet those people, I definitely feel like even if you're not in a writer's room and even if you're not even active on Twitter, you can meet those people and build those relationships. Yeah, and I think, again, with the emphasis on treating it in a casual manner, like you're meeting any other person, you know, they're just other human beings too. They just happen to be further along in their career than you. So, you know, there are a lot of opportunities if you're at a convention like a WonderCon or a Comic-Con or an Austin Film Festival where you're hanging out at a panel and you see people speak at a panel and then everyone goes out for a drink and they'll go out to a bar and then, you know, you might be just having drinks and chatting with the showrunner of some show that you really admire. But, you know, again, I think it's just being careful about how you present yourself and, and understanding that you one day want to work with these people and it's not just a sort of like a fan uh, mentor relationship. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like one of the biggest mistakes besides sort of the general faux pas of, uh, hey, can you read my script right now? The second biggest faux pas is putting them on a pedestal in a mm -hmm. way that that conversation isn't really conducive to something else beyond that conversation. Because it's one thing if you're meeting Joss Whedon and you were like nerding out about Buffy for an hour, but it's another thing if you're meeting a showrunner or an EP that you really respect. And then the goal is to actually work for them or with them on a show in the future, I feel there's like sort of like a different dynamic there, in which case that's very important to treat them with that level of respect that you mentioned, but also just engaging in actual conversations with them and not just being like, hey, I love that episode three, uh, scene five of uh, that thing that you did. And uh, I really respected that choice. It's more build those conversations in a genuine human way. Yeah, I guess. just like every conversation at a mixer doesn't have to be about writing and what do you write and what are you watching on TV and whatever, you know, try to make just conversations about your hobbies and your interests and the other things that make you human. And you're going to connect with people naturally over those things. Yeah. The last point I wanted to make, I guess, is just going back to, again, what you said earlier, Alex, that sometimes it isn't all about going and meeting the top showrunner or whatever, because that person might not be able to help you. They might not have the capacity or inclination to do so immediately. However, if you are making those genuine connections with the people at the same level of you, those aspiring writers, those people coming up, those assistants, give it a couple of years and they will be in those positions soon enough. And hopefully so will you and you can all help each other out. Uh, now on that topic of uh, networking and meeting people, 
What if, let's say we meet and I just always forget people's names at mixers or what we talked about or even what to do after that networking meeting? What are the biggest hurdles that I can solve for myself with the networking? Yeah, I'm sure everyone's run into that problem where you show up to another mixer and you shake hands and say, oh, it's so nice to meet you. And you realize that you already met them several times or they mentioned that, you know, you've met before and then you feel super embarrassed and silly because you either didn't realize or you'd forgotten their name or whatever it happened to be. A good way you can go about solving this problem is essentially to keep track and take notes of who you met at each event and who you had drinks with, what you talked about, what their interests were, that sort of thing. It's, you don't have to write an entire essay. You don't have to create a biography about this person. But if you take just like a paragraph of notes about what you chatted about, if they work at a company, like what does their company do and what are they working on? What's the project? And also just you know what they're interested in as a person, all of that sort of thing. And obviously their name and when you met them, then you can refer back to that later when you see them again or when you're planning to meet up with them, whatever it happens to be. It's just a really nice way to A, remember all of the contacts and relationships that you have, but B, also be able to come in prepared and remembering, you know, even when you're sending a follow-up email to them, you can mention that little thing where you were joking about how you both like to go hiking in Latuna Canyon or whatever. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely something I've mentioned multiple times on the podcast. I'm a big believer on taking those notes when you're meeting someone. I think that's very important to sort of not just have that follow-up content in that email, but just genuinely building relationships and fostering common bonds, especially in the context where you're meeting probably a million people. If you're going to those mixers, you're not going to remember every person. You're not going to remember every conversation. You're not going to remember everyone's favorite show or the pilot they're working on or the script that they're really fascinated by at this point in time. Just having on your notepad or I personally use a lot of contact uh, managing software. So if you use a contact plus for Android or similar apps for iOS, you can do so many things in terms of remembering and helping essentially your future self remembering who these people are who they are in context of other people. That's another thing I'll mention, understanding, oh, wait, you know so-and-so? Oh, this other person knows so-and-so. And that's how you build those bridges between people and those connections is by understanding how holistically that whole industry works. Because even though it may seem like a daunting task to meet a million people and you should not meet a million people, it is very important to understand how everyone connects with everyone. So that way it helps you down the line, building and forming relationships that are going to further your career because you know if you meet a writer and they mention they worked with so-and-so executive at so-and-so's company at some point in time you're going to run into so-and-so's uh, company and or so-and-so the executive in charge of that company and so that way you can refer back to those notes that you took you can refer back to that conversation you can build those relationships in that capacity just the fact that you have a way to trace back those relationships that you met at this day and this date at this restaurant. It also helps you schedule other meetings with those people. And then you don't have to keep asking again, hey, what part of town are you coming from again? Oh, right. You're in the valley and I'm in like Woodland Hills right now, but I live in Hollywood. So how does that work? You don't have to continuously ask the same questions. You can actually have a record and that just facilitates overall the relationship. Yeah. And I think that's really important too, is to take that time to reconnect with people who you met perhaps briefly at a mix or people you got along with and you want to get to know better. Take the time to actually go and have like a solo drinks with them or go and do some activity or whatever happens to be. It could be a group activity, invite them to play board games at your house with some other friends, like start to introduce some of those people to other people who you like and build that whole network 
network of contacts and friends, because if you only ever meet someone once at a mixer and you keep this little dossier of information on them, and then the only times you ever talk to them again is to reach out and ask for favors to submit your script to some company or whatever it happens to be, then those are not real relationships and people are going to feel like you are trying to take advantage of them. Right. Think about your actual friends that are not in the industry, presumably. Hopefully you have friends that are not in the industry. How often do you contact them, right? Are you trying to be strategic saying, all right, it's a Saturday. I need them to be at this place at this time. So I'm going to contact them specifically for this. Or is it more organic in the sense of like, hey, do you want to catch a movie? Hey, do you want to play board games? Hey, do you want to grab a drink? And so forth. You just organically know those informations because they're friends. You know where they live. You know sort of like their pet names. You know, well, not their pet names, but their pets' names. You know, all these <laughs> all these different little information. Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe, don't, maybe don't call yeah. them honey or, yeah. or whatever. Uh, but uh, e- either way, you know those things about uh, your actual friends. So why not the people that presumably you consider your actual contacts and your network? It's that way of uh, sort of proactively thinking about them as actual relationships and not just people to use that is going to help you in the long run. Yeah. And I think that point actually ties in with the next problem or question that we often see, which is how do I go about maintaining those contacts and those relationships with people, especially when I don't perhaps have anything new to share? You know, what do we talk about? How does that work? Yeah, I feel one of the biggest ways of solving that problem is to just follow up with them genuinely and be genuinely interested in their lives. And it doesn't have to be something where you just email them saying, hey, I just landed this like assistant job or a staff writer job on the show. What's up with you? It can just be hey, I saw that you just scored this awesome touchdown at the Super Bowl. Although that that could be just sort of like a weird uh, intro. But just saying... Pat Mahomes, you want to get a drink? (laughs) But... But either way, it's just something to say, hey, just saw this awesome news about you. I just want to follow up with that. Or it could just be hey, I saw this awesome movie and I remember you were a big fan of uh, Robert Zemeckis because we bonded over Back to the Future and for some reason Michael J. Fox is on The Good Wife right now and I just want to hit you up about The Good Wife. Have you seen the latest season of The Good Fight with Michael J. Fox is back? Anyway, so that whole thing of, hey, I know you like this thing. I thought of you because of that other thing. Let's follow up. And just having a continuous follow-up generally, it doesn't have to be once a day or once a week or even once a month. It can just be once every other month. And you start to sort of carry that continuous conversation with them that doesn't feel non-genuine when, you know, uh, you're down the line, you see they're a showrunner of a new series and you're like, hey, I saw that you're a showrunner of this new series. I'm free to work. Do you have any openings? Yeah, and whether it is just those kind of regular check-ins to see how people are doing every X amount of months and calling back on those things that you know are mutual interests of theirs that show that you've actually been paying attention and listening to them and knowing things about them, or whether you have went and forged a genuine friendship and you're seeing this person every couple of weeks to do your regular hangout. All of that will go so much of a longer way to keeping in contact with people than simply meeting one time and then two years later out of the blue, like, hey, so I heard you work for Joss Whedon and uh, I really want to get on this show because people are probably just going to ignore you or be like, I'm sorry, I can't help. Yeah. And if you are actually reigniting that relationship after, let's say, a year or two year or X amount of time not talking with them, then consider it a reset of that relationship. Consider that email that you're sending as almost like a cold email, I would say, maybe slightly warmer, but just in the context of, hey, I saw that you were doing so-and-so, congratulations 
friends, let's grab a drink, which should be more akin to, hey, I saw that you're having a success over here. Congratulations. If you're at all available, I'd love to grab drinks and catch up because I've been doing this thing or that thing, or I thought of you uh, with that show or that book that I was just reading. So let's reconnect on that level. And that way you're sort of restarting that relationship on firmer ground. It's essentially saying, hey, I'm interested in you. Uh, I know we haven't talked in a while. And there's no shame in acknowledging the fact that you haven't talked in a year or two years. And probably because you were busy just as they were. It doesn't have to be a huge deal of, you know, you don't have to explain over a paragraph why uh, you haven't been able to talk with them or even acknowledging the fact that you're hitting them up again because they have a show now. It's more so, hey, it's been a while. I'm sorry we haven't caught up. I was doing this thing and that thing. I'd love to catch up with you whenever you have a second. I'm in this part of town. Let's grab drinks. And that way it's a low stakes situation. You don't have to do this whole thing of this whole rigmarole of asking for something. It's more so a casual drink with someone. And that way it perpetuates the relationship that has grown cold over time. Yeah, it is really important to have that face-to-face check-in every now and then with your contacts and friends. I think if you've gone, like you said, over a year without seeing someone in person and then you want to continue this relationship, I think you need to have basically a refresher face-to-face and see what's going on. Absolutely. And just look through your contacts right now or after this episode. Don't stop this episode. Listen to the whole episode and then pause. But you should once in a while go through your contacts and the people that you've met over the past year or two years and look at the people you could reconnect with in a genuine way. People you're actually interested in learning what they've been up to, their changes in career. And it doesn't have to be something that's very strategic. It can just be something that's amicable and more about the bonding experience than anything else. And let's say you were in a writer's room at some point, there's also no problem in sort of catching up with all the people in a writer's room or work environment if you are at a studio production company, whatnot. That's just an organic way of catching up with those people. And there's a genuine reason for why you're catching up with those people because you worked with those people and they've probably evolved in their careers since you've caught up with them. So that's just an organic reason to follow up even with people you haven't seen in several years. And now let's look at some common problems relating to representation, agents, and managers. And one of the biggest one that we get often is, so I've won a so-and-so's competition, or I've been an assistant, writer's assistant in some rooms, or I have some kind of momentum because I've been on a few uh, script writing lists. But for some reason, I can't really find that right manager or agent to represent me and push me forward in my career. Am I doing something wrong, or what's the process to get to that point? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on whether it's a matter of simply having no rep interest at all. You know, you've never heard from an agent or a manager or all of the things that you've submitted, you've just had no response on or whether it's a matter of you have perhaps worked with the manager before and it just wasn't the right fit or, you know, things weren't working out and you're just trying to find who's the right fit for you for your entire career. But I would say far and away, the most common issue that is at the root of this is probably you not being proactive enough with your material and your own career and putting yourself out there in order to attract that attention. Because if you're just sitting around, even if yes, you are winning competitions and you're being someone's assistant in a room, whatever that happens to be, there's always more that you can be doing to advance your own career and make your own stuff, you know, do short films, do sketches, plays, 
be hosting table reads with your friends, just writing a lot of material and getting it out there to be read and whatever it happens to be and actively networking. I think that if anyone is just sort of like submitting blindly to competitions and sitting at home on their chair waiting to be called by CAA, then that's not going to happen for you. I could not agree more with what you're saying. And to that idea of being proactive, I'm a huge believer in leveraging every single win. Even if you win a small competition, you can use that to meet or at least cold email some relevant reps. Whether they're going to be a good fit or a bad fit, that's a whole other conversation. But just in terms of being proactive, I know so many people who are, let's say, writers assistants or who've won X and YZ's uh, competitions. And for some reason, they don't use those opportunities to seek out the next step, whether that's a rep or uh, some other writing connection, because surely they're busy, you know, it's hiring to be a writer assistant or a script editor or a show assistant or even a staff writer. You have a lot of pressure on you and that's a real thing. However, you still have some time. You should still seek out those opportunities on your own. You should not be complacent in uh, the place you're in. In fact, if you are having some success, you should use that success to further the success in a way. And to the point about not finding the right manager or agent or represent me, beyond being uh, proactive and leveraging those wins, the other element that you should look into is defining your brand. How are you selling yourself to those people? Who are you as a writer? Because you got to define who you are as a person or creative. Is there some kind of uh, connected tissue with all your samples, you got to make it easy for the reps to sell you, which is uh, another point we're going to address in a few of the other problems in terms of representation. But just generally, I really feel like if you are having any kind of momentum, you should be using that momentum to push you further instead of waiting for the phone to ring or waiting for the people in charge of the competition to do something for you. And that's something that I've learned the hard way myself. And so I definitely advise people to stand up for themselves and just leverage every single opportunity that they can. Yeah. I mean, there's this common wisdom we're saying that like, oh, reps will find you when you're ready. They'll reach out to you when you're doing something, you know, it's been noticed. I mean, yes, that's true. Sometimes if you make a great Sundance film or whatever, or you get yourself staffed on a show and then suddenly reps want to look after you. But I think to some extent that's also a trap because it can encourage you to sort of sit idly by and wait for Hollywood to come knocking. And that's not always going to happen. I think a lot of people find their reps because they realize that they need something in their career, whether that is more help with developing their stuff and taking meetings around town, or whether that is being tapped into the staffing resources that are available in an agency because they don't have those contacts themselves. And so they actively put themselves out as looking for a rep. And that's where you start to lean on your contacts and your friends in those relationships to be like, hey, I'm looking for a rep. This is the kind of stuff I write. And this is my experience. Have you heard of anyone good? Have you worked with anyone? Do you know someone who's wrapped by this company? And you can really actively put yourselves on their radar and be read by them because they might not ever find you otherwise. Absolutely. And that's essentially at that point in time when you're seeking out those reps, you should essentially manage your managers in the context of what is a strategic way for me to find the right rep for me? Is it through the kind of relationships that you have? Is it more so the right fit in terms of your brand? Is it what's available to you? Is it who you can contact? Is it more, you know, where you want to go in a few years? All those different questions are things that should be floating in your head. And ultimately, that's, you know, sort of the perspective that you should have is, what is a proactive way I can go about doing this search for my rep as opposed to what is a way I can just wait for them to come to me? 
So another common problem that we'll see with people and their reps is that they feel like their reps aren't doing enough for them. Now, whether that's sending out their samples to people, getting them meetings, or helping them on the development side of working through their scripts and getting them out there to be sold. Yeah, I mean, that's a very common issue. I've certainly lived it. I know a lot of people, I feel like every single writer out there is unhappy with their reps. So I think that's a regular issue. Personally, I believe it comes down to several factors. One of them is just communication. You need to talk with your rep and be very very upfront and deliberate about what you want and what you're seeking out. A lot of people, once they have an agent or a manager, they kind of like what we just talked about, about seeking those managers, they kind of sit on their butts and they think, oh, now the work is finished. They will find me those jobs or those meetings. Well, that's true and not true at the same time. I believe strongly that you should be giving direction and very specific purpose to your reps, whether that's, hey, I want to meet at this company, or hey, I've got this sample, it should be right for the showrunner, or hey, I'm working on this new project that I really want to develop with this IP. All these different topics of conversations should be handled directly with your reps, and you should be very proactive in that way as well. Now, beyond that aspect, the other factor to look into is just, is it objectively true that you're not having enough meetings? What I mean by that is if you are having a couple of general meetings every month and you're on staff on a show, that's a lot of meetings already. That's pretty decent chunk of meetings. But if you're only having like one meeting every six months and you're unemployed and they're not doing anything for you in that capacity, that is when I would definitely consider switching managers and or firing those people. Yeah, for sure. And I think that part of this too is not just the action in and of itself of sending out your samples or getting you the meetings, but in order to kind of solve this problem of like, well, why isn't this happening more? You need to be asking your reps about the feedback that you're getting from those things. You know, what are the execs saying or the showrunners saying when they're reading your samples and giving feedback to your agent? What are they saying after the meeting? How did the meeting go? What did they like about you? Why didn't they go with you for the show? Whatever it happens to be. And I think that that might provide some insight into perhaps why you aren't getting more meetings. It might be because the sample isn't strong enough and people really aren't responding to it. You know, it's fine, but it's not like blowing them away or they've kind of seen it before. So that might mean that you need to be writing fresh samples for them to put out there. Or it could be that you don't really know how to handle yourself in a meeting very well and you might be a little off-putting to people or you might be too high energy or too low energy or whatever it happens to be. Like, you know, they're often able to be quite honest with your agent and your rep about how it went because they act as the filter between the two of you. They're not going to sit there in the meeting and be like, look, you know what? I don't like your energy. Get out of my room, you know? But they're going to be able to pick up the phone later and go like, look, I thought that their buyer was really interesting and I kind of liked their script, but they just gave off this weird vibe in the room and maybe they need to be working on that. So definitely be asking for feedback whenever you can on those samples and on those meetings. Right, and it's important for them to be honest with you. And I'm definitely someone who's all about communication and honesty. So when you're asking your reps for that feedback, a lot of reps are gonna sugarcoat it to some extent, or they're gonna be saying uh, generic things like, yeah, we didn't get a response or they didn't really engage with the material or it wasn't the right fit. But you should dig a little bit deeper in that context and just ask, why wasn't it the right fit? If uh, I wrote this like action procedural that a lot of people responded to and this was for staffing on SWAT, like what was the, the gap there? It seemed like a perfect fit. I also knew the Shorna's assistant. What was the deal there? If you ask those questions, you'll understand pretty quickly if A, is an actual issue there that they're not telling you about and uh, maybe they'll finally tell you about it or B, they're actually leading you on and they're not being honest and maybe they're not really pushing and pulling their weight 
weight in the right way. And maybe that's when you should consider again, finding another manager. It's sort of that distinction between is there a problem with you or is there a problem with them? I definitely feel like the first person you should look at is yourself. And that's why you need to talk with those reps and assess where the problem lies. And that's all rooted in communication. Exactly. I think there's a very real possibility that, especially if you are with a smaller agency or a management place or an independent kind of manager, some, at least, you know, even someone who is a little newer to the game at one of the bigger agencies, they might not just have the right network of contacts yet, or they might not have the contacts in the right area that you are looking to work. And that might be why you're not getting enough meetings because they just don't know those people yet, or they're too busy focusing on the one hour drama sphere to get you these animated comedy meetings. You know, that's something you need to take into consideration as well is like, realistically, is this the right rep for me? Do they have the right connections? And are we going to be able to work together on getting me where I need to be in my career? Yeah, I see it as sort of a balance between hustling and their relationships. If you are in a big agency, let's say you're a CAA, you're WME, they will have massive relationships and massive connections because they are massive companies. But on the flip side, they may not hustle for you at all or not that much because you're a low-level assistant or a low-level staff writer, so you're very low priority. On the flip side, if you are in a more boutique agency or boutique management company, they probably will not have those relationships that CAA or those big four will have. However, presumably they will hustle for you more because they're more dependent on you, much like you are with them. You are a bigger piece of their income. So they should be hustling for you a lot more. The danger comes when none of those two factors are filled. If A, they don't have any relationships and B, they're not really hustling for you or you're not enough for party for them. Again, it goes back to what I said earlier about that's a real possibility the problem lies with them and not necessarily on your shoulders. And that leads perfectly into the next problem that is a pretty common in terms of reps. That is my reps are bad at communicating with me or there's a lack of transparency with my relationship with my agents and managers. Communication is so important, I guess, in life in general and just relationships, but also especially in that writer-rap relationship. You need to be on the same page about everything in terms of your career and what you're writing and what's going on with all of that. So if you aren't hearing from your reps enough, like if it's three months in between every time you ever hear from them or six months or whatever it happens to be, probably a sign that, you know, something's going wrong there and that some unspoken need or assumption or expectation isn't being met there. You're expecting that you should be talking every two weeks and they don't have that same expectation. Or it might be that you're checking in regularly and they are saying, yeah, look, not much is happening. We sent your stuff out to some people. We'll let you know if we hear anything back. And that's the only answer you ever get from them. And that can be really unsatisfying as a writer. You want to know, well, where were you sending my stuff? Who were you sending it to? What was the response from that sort of stuff? There's some degree to which, of course, your agent or your manager can't be outlining every single email they sent that day and every interaction that goes forward. You know, they're, they're working across a number of clients, so they can't sit there and micromanage each individual client's you know, interactions with whoever. But at the same time, they should be giving you the highlights and the important information of what's going on and if it worked or why not. You should be the one setting the expectation if the expectations that you feel are there are not met. If, to your point, they're not emailing you more than one time every three months, or they're not fulfilling uh, an agreement that you had with them in terms of pursuing a certain IP or a certain project, and uh, you're the one continuously having to follow up every single time 
on that very specific thing. At that point, that's really when you should question that lack of communication and you should sit them down and say, honestly, there's no shame in being very honest with them and sharing with them your frustration about their lack of communication, the lack of transparency. For example, you can ask for a list of everyone they've sent your samples to, all the people, all the companies. That way there's more transparency. That way you're looped into their process. You know, even though you may not be getting a million meetings or you may not be getting a million staffing jobs, at least you are aware that they are doing their job as opposed to not doing anything. At least you have some kind of proof that they can show you that they're actually doing something for you. Even if the outcome is uh, not necessarily positive, even if despite sending it to a million people, that sample isn't resonating. And at that point, uh, you know that the sample itself is probably the problem because it's not connecting with anyone. On the flip side, if they've only sent it to like five people and four of those you've had successful meetings, that means obviously the sample is engaging enough to get you a meeting. But I would question the fact that they've only sent it to five people as opposed to a lot more people if that was your desire that they do that. It's again, uh, going back to this idea of communication being an important part of any relationship, but specifically within the context of your agent manager relationship, it's something that should be dealt with swiftly and regularly especially if you feel frustrated about some of the elements that they have going against you. Yeah, I think even at the point of choosing your reps, this should definitely be a consideration. It's, you know, when you're sitting down having those first meetings and they've read your stuff and they like it and you're deciding whether or not you want to go with them, I think even then you should be addressing the expectations of how much will we be in communication? What can I expect in that regard? And choosing perhaps, oh, I'd like to work with a boutique manager who's going to have a lot of time for me to develop it. We're going to be on a call every week, but then I want to work with a big agency because they have those connections. And then maybe once a month, we'll put in a call to them and be like, here's the plan. Here's the shows I want to work on and making sure that the agent and the manager are also communicating and everyone is working together towards the same goal. Right. And that goes back to sort of what you're looking for in terms of your team, your agent, your manager. Some people like their managers to be very hands-on creatively, and they don't really lean into the manager on the business side. And other people are the flip version of that, where even if they're a manager, they do enjoy their notes, obviously, because they're going to be very involved creatively, but they lean on the manager more so on the business side. And for me, at least, it's kind of like that balance of, am I repped by this manager because I'm looking for their notes, or am I looking at this manager? because of their professional relationship with other people. And it's that balance that I seek out when I look at my managers. The last point about reps that we want to cover, which really ties in well with all of this, is the problem of your reps not necessarily agreeing on your career direction or who you are as a writer. Yeah, I mean, that is uh, everything we talked about until now. It, again, boils down to communication and being clear about what you want and who you are. If there's an actual disconnect that is at the core of that relationship. For example, if you really want to be in a gritty drama universe and they're only submitting you for lighter dramedy for USA Network, let's say, there's a fundamental misunderstanding about where you want to be and where they want you to be at. And maybe they're the ones pushing for that direction. If they are pushing for that direction and you're unhappy with the direction, then you should definitely, again, consider calling it quits. It's probably not the right fit and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with having a bad fit with the manager. It's like relationships. You don't have to be in a relationship with someone if you are not happy in this relationship. You know, it behooves you to not be in a manager-client relationship if the manager is dragging you in a completely different area than where you want to be at as a writer. There's a certain pressure that writers feel when they're talking to their reps. 
of, oh yeah, I can do anything. Or what's that? There's a job opportunity coming up. Yeah, of course, I'll whip up a one hour drama for you, even though I'm a comedy writer. I think that we're kind of eager to jump at those chances and those opportunities because the work is out there. And as a result, you tend to kind of sacrifice or compromise uh, your creative uh, integrity, your vision for like what you want in your career. And I think it's fine to be able to turn around and say to your reps, yeah, you know what? Like, I am an animation writer, but I'm really not interested in preschool. I really want to be doing more of the adult animation stuff. And then they will know not to waste their time submitting your stuff to all these preschool places and to be really focusing on those relationships in that area. You know, they're not going to drop you as a writer because you can't do every single opportunity they have to come up to submit you for. In fact, that's probably why they signed you in the first place was because they knew this was your niche and they wanted a writer on their roster who could fill that when they have those opportunities. They're just trying to be good reps and be like, hey, here's this thing. You know, would you be interested in this? And it's okay to say no. Yeah. And uh, to me, that's exactly when you should be more communicative and checking more on the reps. In your example of, hey, I'm an animation writer, but I don't do preschool. And they stop submitting you for preschool material then are they actually submitting you for the other kinds of animation opportunities that they have, or are they just not submitting you for anything at all? And that's the sort of the pivot of the situation where you gotta watch out for, are they actually doing what you're asking them to do, or were they just doing this thing because that was kind of like the only niche that they could access, and now that you're not in this niche, they can't really do anything else for you. And a good rep will definitely be able to pivot and send you to those positive opportunities that are more tailored to you. And a bad rep is just not going to do anything for you once you tell them, hey, I'm not interested in the thing you're doing now, but what about this other thing? Yeah, there's definitely reps who have a very particular area that they have their contacts and relationships in, and then they tend to cultivate writers for that area. And again, I think that, you know, the point at which you should be discussing this is before you even sign with them. When I was recently out meeting with managers and looking for who I wanted to kind of bring onto my team, I met with one particular manager who I really liked and got along with super well. But he was very honest and said, look, these are the exact areas in which I tend to have clients in which I have these relationships. And if this is the areas you want to work, then we could work together. But I stopped and realized like, you know, I could try to work in those areas, but it's not what I'm passionate about. And as a result, he didn't have the right connections in those other places. And that's totally fine. You find someone who can help guide you towards where you want to be. And you don't want to end up in a situation where they are trying to turn you into something else because that's all they can offer you. Yeah. In, in the same way that we writers have a tendency to be yes people because of work opportunities, you also want to watch out for those managers who are yes people in the context of, hey, how about genre writing? How about procedural? How about this and that? And they say, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I can definitely staff you there. I can definitely do this and that. And when you are actually signing with them or you've signed with them, you live through the experience where they don't actually have the capabilities of actually getting you to those places that you want to be, as opposed to someone who's very specific and honest about, hey, this is my niche, this is my area of expertise. I feel like there's a Venn diagram where we're overlapping and we're perfectly in sync in this area, but this other side of your career, I may not be well suited for. And that's up to you as a client to decide if that's the kind of rep you want. Yeah, the managers and agents are sitting there with this big cutout wooden board of shapes of triangles and squares and circles. And then they've got all these different shaped blocks, which are their writers. And so here are all the opportunities and they're putting those writers into the right holes. But then occasionally they might not have anything for this one or they want to put as many as possible into this one thing so that they increase their chances of staffing a client on it. And then they're trying to force the wrong shape through the wrong hole. And you don't want to be that shape. <laughs> yeah. So we're all shapes and uh, the goal is to find the right hole. <laughs> God. 
So we've covered uh, networking contacts relationships as well as your reps, but now let's move on to the ins and outs of managing and juggling actual projects, especially on the running side and all the different obstacles that you may encounter in this business. And the first one that uh, we've seen is just, what if I've been asked to do freelance development work on this awesome project? Should I really take it or what should I watch out for in terms of this potential opportunity? Yeah, so this is super, super common. You will be encountering this from day one, even if you haven't been staffed on anything, you know, whether you're working with a rep or not, there will always be, oh, we have this book or we have this IP or this movie that we want to adapt into a TV thing. And uh, we're just looking for writers to kind of, you know, help us develop it. And I would say 99% of the time that's going to be unpaid and it's going to be often what they call a bake-off situation where they have 10 different writers that they're talking to and telling them the same thing. And then they wait and see what these writers come back with and they go with whichever one seems the most interesting to them. And the issue with that is that none of these people are getting compensated for their time and their effort and their work. And they're more or less being taken advantage of whether this is some small time producer or manager or whoever that has this property or whether it's a big studio studio that wants takes on their IP, this whole thing is prevalent throughout the industry. So the question of, you know, whether or not you should take it really comes down to a couple of things. Firstly, whether it's paid or unpaid, but as you know, as we said, most of the time it's going to be unpaid. If you're lucky enough for it to be paid, then sure. Yeah. If you're not doing anything else, why not? You know, and you're excited about it. The next thing that it comes down to is, are you actually passionate about this project or not? Or is it just something that's like, well, it's an opportunity. And even though I kind of hate this IP or I'm indifferent about it, sure. I'll give it a shot because I want to take this chance that I might get selected for this thing. Another thing to consider is just how much time do you actually have to spend on this? What else could you be doing with that time? If you're going to spend three months developing a pitch on this IP that you could have spent writing a brand new pilot for sampling for staffing, what's going to be really be worth it at the end? And the last thing I think that you should sort of think about is realistically, how likely is this to turn into anything? And most of the time that answer is not very, you know, you have to go through so many hoops just to get to the point of it maybe getting made or maybe officially being put into development or maybe getting paid for it. You've got to beat out all the other writers who have come up with those takes. You've got to impress the executive you're talking to. That executive then has to impress their boss. Then the boss has to take it to the business people who have to decide to give it some money. And then you go through the development process. And then if you make it through the development process, Maybe you get to make a proof of concept or a pilot. And if that goes, then maybe you get a series. You know, there's so many, so many steps that are going to happen. And 99.9% .9 of these unpaid development projects never actually turn into anything. So uh, really consider how far along the process it is, what your credentials are, and how likely you are to actually still be involved with it the whole way through, and whether it's worth your time. For me, it comes down to really the ratio between your time and the outcome of this freelance development work. I've definitely been in a position where I could have a freelance developed some project. I'm also doing it myself in my own projects. And that is the ratio I look out for is how much time am I going to be spending on this project as opposed to another project that could further my career better or less than this project. And on the flip side, how much is this development going to lead me to something else? Some of the questions I ask myself are, is this a sample or a pitch project I can reuse for something else? If this uh, project falls through with this studio or this company, 
am I going to be able to use that for another network, another studio, another location, especially since I have access, for example, uh, to uh, international markets? Can I pivot this pitch to something more tailored for someone else? If I am actually going to write a sample or if they're actually looking for me to write a spec pilot, is it an actual pilot I can use as a sample? Is this something that fits with my brand? Is it something that fits with my narrative? Is it something I can use as a staffing sample genuinely on top of being a developmental project. Also, another thing I consider is, is this going to help me meet people professionally? If it's a bake-off with EMC and I've never met those people before and those are actual top-level executives that in any other context I would have really big problems meeting, perhaps it's worth my time to at least conceive a basic pitch and maybe a little bit of packaging if it's not too much time and work on my end for the benefit of meeting those people in a professional environment and they can see me as a creative person. And uh, the last thing is, uh, like you said, is there an actual possibility for any of this to be produced or at least to take me to that next level in the same way that if I'm meeting those AMC people and I'm building this relationship, perhaps that pilot I'm trying to make in this bake-off is never going to be made, but are these the people that can get me staffed on an AMC show in this example? Or can they recommend me to another position or another pilot or another developmental slate? All these different things are things to consider because it's not as binary as this project is good and this project is bad. Because at the end the day, we only have so much time and resources that we can use for our own projects as opposed to other people's projects. So it's the balance that you're going to make for yourself in terms of your own uh, wants and needs as opposed to other people's wants and needs. The irony about this whole situation as well with all the unpaid development is that the people who are going to be most likely or most often asked to do it are newer writers, are lower level writers who want to kind of take that shot. And, you know, they're not so busy working on other shows that they can afford to spend that time doing it. But lower level writers are also the least likely people that a studio or a network or producer is going to be excited to have on board as an executive producer or a creator of a project. And it's going to be harder for them to get that through any sort of real, you know, fun or green light process. So, you know, it's a real possibility that you spend a bunch of time developing stuff and they're like, yeah, this was all great, but you know what? We ended up going with this showrunner anyway. So um, just be wary of that as well, that sometimes it really helps to have some sort of credits or reputation behind you in order to uh, increase your chances of one of these type of things going and you being selected as the person to be there for it. Yeah. And to me, that's why you got to pay special attention to what are you getting out of this outside of meeting people. If the project isn't paid, or rather if the development work isn't paid, and there's a 99% likelihood that this project is never going to see the light of day, what are you getting out of it? Are you getting your writing practice? Hopefully you can do that on your own time. You can write your own spec pilots. Are you meeting uh, showrunners perhaps? If you're packaging a project for a network and they're connecting you to showrunners and EPs, that could be worth your time because maybe this project is going to fail, but you're building a relationship with an EP and a showrunner who later down the line can be packaged for another project that you're working on. Again, it's a balance between all those different elements that you got to keep in mind because it's not as binary as paid or unpaid. It's more complicated and based on who you are as a writer and what you want out of it. And that leads us to the next problem uh, in terms of writing and, uh, and business. And that is, well, I'm working this uh, full-time job. Maybe I'm a writer's assistant. Maybe I'm a staff writer. I'm working these 60-hour weeks. I really cannot find time to write due to my day job or work environment. 
Yeah, again, this is an incredibly common issue for a lot of people who are trying to work their way up that, you know, support staff assistant level thing. But these hours are incredibly draining and don't leave you with very much time for your own stuff. So even if you do carve out a few hours uh, in the nighttime when you get back home, you're probably feeling drained of energy and you're tired and you're not really doing your best work. So I think there are a couple of ways to address this. And it really just depends on who you are as a writer and how you work best. You can take a look at some of your productivity issues, things that we covered actually on the the last episode that we did on these tips and tricks of writing, which I believe was PT93. And there's been other episodes we've done too about ways of really structuring your work time and making sure that you're, you know, whatever it is, you're doing an hour every day at 8 p.m. or you're trying to write one page every week or what, you know, whatever works for you, you know, using timers, using methods to shut things out. So, you know, is this really an issue of you physically having no time at all during the week or is this more of an issue of motivation and productivity and energy because those are issues that can be addressed. Right. Is the question the fact that you are actually working over 60 hours a week and you really are mentally drained and therefore cannot mentally and physically work on your projects? Or is it more that you're getting distracted because you have that day job that is taking a small chunks of time out of your day and it's going to distract you from something else? The other element that also comes to my mind is the fact that sometimes when you're on staff in a writer's room in some capacity, you are creatively drained at the end of the day. And that's a real problem. If you know you are working, regardless of your hours, it could be uh, 12 hours a day, it could be eight hours a day. If you're pitching in the room and you're creatively involved in a show day in, day out, five days a week, you're going to be struggling when you get back home to work on your own projects because probably your priority is still going to be mentally in that other show that you're spending your day uh, working on and hopefully getting paid for. So that should definitely be your priority. But that doesn't stop you from during the weekends making and carving out some time to work on your projects. It's sort of like managing your mental space. Uh, like Nick said, it's something that we've covered on PT93 and other episodes about productivity and that mental uh, self-care and mental space. The other thing I'll mention is when I'm on a show or when I'm working, my reps also know that I'm working and on a show. So conversely, they understand that I'm not going to be generating as much material as I am during hiatus. If I'm working on a pilot, I'm going to be delivering it a little bit uh, slower than if I was uh, in between the jobs, especially if it's something that's kind of like in the line of the show I'm working on. I try to separate those creative spaces. So if I'm like on a sci-fi show, I don't really know if I would want to write a pilot that is sort of like a sci-fi drama at the same time that I'm on this uh, show that's kind of similar to the one I'm writing just because I don't want to cross-pollinate those spheres. That's probably like actually another way to solve that problem is by working on something that makes you creatively fulfilled that's pretty different from the thing that you're working on. If you're working on maybe like a procedural that is a bit light and a little bit networky, then uh, on your nighttime or your weekend time, maybe it's better to work on some edgy cable piece that fits your niche or vice versa. If you're working on the blood and guts horror edgy show uh, five days a week, maybe on weekends, your real interest is uh, something that's slightly different than that show. And so that way you can sort of find your mental space to transition into that other sample. 
Yeah. The other things I'd say about this question of not having time to write due to your day job would be look at what you are doing with your free time. I think that there's a tendency for writers, especially people who are hustling and trying to break their way in to overschedule themselves and to be having uh, networking drinks every single night. And then on the weekends, they have a mixer and they have this and that. And so just kind of take a look at what is the balance of areas of your career that you're focusing on. Are you spending 80% of your time building networks and relationships and only 20% of your time? writing, well, maybe you need to scale down and set yourself only two networking drinks a week so that you have that extra time to actually be writing because there's no way you're going to work all day, go to a networking drinks until 10 or 11 at night and then come home and be productive writing. So take a look at that balance and what you really need to be focusing on at this time. And the last thing I would say is sometimes you need to stop and re-examine the job that you're doing and what it's actually doing for you. Are you just working it to get a paycheck and pay the bills? Or if you're doing one of these intensive industry jobs, is it offering you the networks and the relationships and the connections that you need to be advancing the opportunities to perhaps be promoted into writing? If it's not, and you're just doing it because it's in the industry, then maybe you could consider getting a more regular nine to five job that probably pays better and gives you more time to be writing. Yeah, I'm a big believer in, especially when when it comes to day job and things like that, if you are only doing it to get paid, then that quality of work life is important. You know, if it's a job that's not actually going to lead to something uh, more on the TV writing side, then uh, the burden should be on figuring out, okay, what's the best way I can get that nine to five or whatever work works better for you in terms of having that mental space to then write those pilots and network and do all those things. On the flip side, if you are actually in a, a work environment that is conducive to building those relationships and building to that next step of being staffed on that show, then the focus should be on making the best impression within that job. And then uh, probably uh, if the rest of uh, your personal stuff is sacrificed in the meantime, that's that's sort of like a debate for yourself to have. But at least uh, on the work side, it should definitely be a focus to foster those relationships and making sure that the work is taken care of in the right way. To circle back to your earlier point about inspecting the way you spend your free time, I think it's a really good idea to look at, practically speaking, how many hours are you spending on those networking drinks? How many hours are you spending at those mixers? Because if you just coalesce all those uh, hours together, if you just uh, collate all that time and you realize, oh wait, if I'm spending an hour in traffic and then uh, 90 minutes drinking with this person and then I got this other mix on that day, you'll quickly find that throughout the week, if it's like three or four hours a day of just doing that networking thing, that's already 15 to 20 hours of time you could be spending writing your pilot or writing your next script or working on emails, following up with actual connections that you have. And it doesn't mean that every night when you go home after that 8 to 12 hour, 14 hour day, you're going to be working on that pilot for three hours. It just means that you are able to give yourself that space where you go home, you spend an hour decompressing, and maybe you spend one hour switching commas around and uh, background processing the show that you're writing, and then another hour banging out a scene. And then that's already more progress all accounted for than uh, you would have if you had just gotten that one drink with this random person who you'll never follow up again and uh, it's not going to serve you any practical purposes. Yeah, there's definitely a level of diminishing returns where if you're spending all of your time networking and doing all the things that are ancillary to writing, you know, a lot of people feel like that, you know, it's, oh, if I do all of this, then it's going to get me faster into the writing jobs I need. But I think that more than anything, writing more material and writing good material is going to get you where you need to be. 
All right, last but certainly not least, let's look at some of the problems or common issues relating to staffing, work, and job interviews. And the first one is that I've just started my job and I realized it's a bad working environment. Maybe there's long hours or a lot of traffic, et cetera, et cetera. What should I do? And actually, can I leave the job early even if I just took it? Or if I'm in a room and I don't think it's working out, what can I do to change that situation? Yeah, I think that those are two different sort of answers to questions. I think if you're a writer and this is a job in a writer's room, then it's a sort of a different political game to take into consideration. Is it the fact that, you know, it's just long hours and it's hard work and uh, you're staying up past midnight punching up jokes and uh, the showrunner works everyone really hard? And, you know, you don't enjoy that and you want to leave? Or is it that it's a toxic situation where people are being abusive and it's really draining your mental health and all that sort of thing? In, in the latter instance of that, I think it's a lot easier to justify to your agents and to the studio that, you know, you need to extricate yourself from the situation. And if it's the former, then as much as it sucks, I think you also need to consider the long-term ramifications of, uh, am I damaging my relationships with these other writers? Is it easier to just kind of stick out a tough working environment for the next so many weeks and be able to move on to the next job or wait and see if I get fired because I still have to pay you out the rest of your contract anyway than it is to kind of leave in the lurch. And, you know, especially as a lower level writer, that might hurt your ability to be hired again. Putting aside the writing side of things, putting aside the, the staff writing contract and, and all that, if we're talking strictly in the context of like a writer's assistant or a desk that's really hostile or just a general bad work environment outside of your writing contract, I'm definitely an advocate of watching out for yourself because we only have one life. And the truth is that if you were hired uh, at this company and the company somehow felt like they had a better person, they would probably drop you in a heartbeat. In that context, it's important to realize that in most places, they don't value you as much as you value them, especially in this environment where there's so many people wanting to be a writer's assistant or wanting to be in a show in some capacity. And so they're sort of battling for that position. And so they're willing to accept something that's lesser than they deserve. And it's important. It's something that we've talked a lot about in our knowing your worth as an assistant episode. But that's another element to keep in mind is just knowing at what point this bad environment is actually bad and not something you should just take because it may lead you to an episode at some point. And that's why like most employers, I feel like find you as a person expendable. They may not admit it. They'll probably never admit it out loud. But the truth is that we as people, as writers, as assistants, as people wanting and desperately needing to be in this industry, we break our backs to do that job, to be that assistant, to be that writer, just to get the opportunity to level up. And that's like a huge thing to be conscientious of. Just the fact that you're not forced to be in this uh, bad environment. And especially in our day and age with, you know, hashtag pay up Hollywood and like all the different uh, social movements going on around those bad environments. Those are, are things that you should watch out for. And there's just no shame in leaving a job early, especially if you just started out in that position and you realize really quickly that showrunner hates their family and you're going to be spending a 16 hours every single day on that show. That's definitely something you should consider. Like Nick said, something to talk about with your reps. It's definitely something that you should ask for help 
and understand, oh, maybe there's a way out. I don't need to be forced to be in this situation. And it could be a mutually beneficial thing. I was on a show where one of the writers left halfway uh, through the season, their contract was running out, and it was kind of like a mutually agreed decision where he wanted out because the environment wasn't the best for him. And the Sharandru kind of wanted him out because he wasn't participative enough in that room. It's not something bad. It's just sometimes the fit just isn't there and there's no problem communicating that with your rep and seeing if they can talk to the studio, talking to the network without damaging that reputation, especially with a showrunner. If you can speak with the showrunner and they're not actually abusive, that's an important thing to look out for. If they're actually abusive, that's a whole other conversation and that's probably uh, illegal. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely much more mercenary when it comes to just sort of assistant level jobs and production jobs and things that are around that sort of thing. I agree completely with Alex that I think that all those employers basically feel like those people are replaceable and as such, you shouldn't feel guilty about packing up and leaving if you need to. And if it's not working out for you, there will always be other opportunities down the road. And if that uh, job wasn't directly advancing you towards your goals in some way, then, you know, just get out of there. Yeah, if you are in a writer's room and things are not working out, it's also important to talk to the people around you and try to gauge if the problem lies with you, if it's sort of a biased issue that you're only feeling, if it's something that other people are sharing, and then you can form a team and understand that maybe this is an actually hostile work environment or is it more this specific show is not the right fit for me? You know, I've just made a huge mistake. I shouldn't have taken this job. Those are two different conversations and two different things to look out for. Right, the next problem people might run into is that you've been offered a job or, you know, you're on the verge of being offered a job, but you're not sure if it's the right one for you or you're a little anxious about taking it. Alex, what are some of the like red flags that people should be looking out for with those job offers? Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like there's a lot of red flags depending on the situation. I would say like, first of all, if you are anxious, I mean, it's normal to be anxious uh, about a new job, generally speaking. It's kind of, you know, the, the first day of school uh, butterflies. That said, I also am a strong believer in trusting your gut. If it doesn't feel right, then it may not be the right one. Some of the red flags that I look out for, a big one that I'm very aware of is a commute. If it's a, a show that is very, very far away from me, I feel like that definitely drains me mentally. I'm currently on a show that is as far as my last show, and I know that is a, a big pain for me, at least uh, mentally to just be an hour away plus uh, by car from uh, that show. So that's definitely one of the biggest, I don't know if it's a red flag per se, but definitely something to watch out for when uh, you are interviewing. And in, in fact, to that point of interviewing, when you're interviewing, you can look at different things that may or may not happen in that interview, in that process of getting to work. Because uh, presumably when you're getting to that interview and that interview is in the same spot as the room is going to be in, you can sort of gauge different things that may or may not work. One of those things besides commuting is parking. Usually on most shows, especially if you're looking at, at an assistant type position, the two people with the best parking spot should be the showrunner and the writer's PA or the showrunner's assistant or writer's assistant if it's sort of like a combination job. If you go into a parking and they are in a huge convoluted lot and uh, it's really intricate and you realize, oh, if I'm taking this assistant job and my job is going to consist of getting lunches every day and the parking station is just awful, like it's a huge pain logistically or it's getting in the building is very confusing and not just because it's the first day I'm interviewing there, but it, there's actual issues in terms of the office, office hours, commuting, all those different things. That's one big red flag in terms of the logistics of the working environment that I would watch out for. Like the parking structure is a block away in a dirt lot in the middle of nowhere that you have to walk the entire way with lunch for and it's dangerous at night, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was quite literally one of the last rooms I was in was exactly 
exactly that, where you had like sort of two parking stations. One was essentially in the office building, and that was great. And then there was a separate lot that most of the riders were in that was a little bit more distant, badly lit at night. It wasn't in a great area. Those are the things that you should watch out for in terms of the parking and the commuting at the very least. For sure. I think you can get a sense for uh, these potential issues and red flags in the interview process itself, not only in the questions you ask, but perhaps the things that are said or unsaid or those little code words about, you know, like thick skin and all of that kind of stuff too. But not even that, but the information around it, like I said, that isn't being said. For example, if you're starting on the production staff of season two TV show, and you realize they're hiring four new office PAs and an APOC and all of this sort of thing. Like, well, where did everyone else go? Was that because there was a gap between seasons? Or maybe they really didn't enjoy working here and it was a problematic work environment for whatever reason. And that's why there's such a huge rate of turnover. You know, is if you're interviewing for an assistant job for a manager or producer, is this a job that gets advertised every three to six months? Is it constantly going in and out? You have to stop and ask yourself, why is that? And if you can, try to find out information from friends or people who might know what's going on there. Yeah. And even uh, as you're waiting for that job interview in the office, you can look around and see the ambiance. Uh, are people shouting? Are the bosses respectful towards the other assistant there or the support staff or maintenance? It's the classic thing of like when you're on a date, is the date respectful to the wait staff? Uh, they're saying please and thank you. It's a similar vibe that you can get when you're interviewing with the showrunner or the EP or the people in the office. And also how the people look, are they sort of relaxed or are they more on edge. Other things to look out for are in the interview, how are they talking about other people they worked with, uh, whether that's their current assistant, if you're looking at assistant jobs or other writers. Like you said, if they fired the entire staff last season or if it's, uh, you know, the season two or three of a show and the only people back are, let's say, a showrunner from the first season and an EP, why isn't the rest of the room back? Is it because it's been many years since the first season and so uh, obviously most of those people moved on or was the season a month ago and there was quote unquote creative differences. And actually it's more so because the hours are insane and the showrunner hates their lives. And so that's why they're gonna be spending uh, most of the time uh, in the office. Those are the different things you should watch out for uh, that also tie back to the hours. You can get a good sense of the hours by just asking, honestly, what are the hours like? What's the workload? How are you breaking that season? What's the writing process like? All those questions at least will give you a good sense of is the shorter actually effective at their job? Are they just sort of making this up as they go? Are they not sure and not very decisive enough? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A common thing that you'll run into in terms of showrunners is some showrunners do not know what they want. And so what happens is as the season is being broken, they come into the room one day saying, oh yeah, all this is great. And then the next day they come in hating everything. And then uh, you have to restart essentially the breaking process over and over and over and over again. And if it's a couple of times a week, it doesn't matter. But if it's something every single day, every single month, you're going to be rebreaking that season or that episode over and over and over again because of a fickle sort of decision-making at the top, that's another element that you should be watching out for that is going to make uh, your job much harder. The other thing to watch out for is who exactly are you interviewing with, especially if it's like a writer's assistant position or a staff writer position or any kind of position within the writer's room. Are you interviewing with the actual showrunner? Are you interviewing with the producing EP? Are you interviewing with both of them at separate points in time or at the same time? That will give you a good sense of how they see you as a person because presumably the showrunner is busy 
And so they don't have much time to meet with people, but for a position like a staff writer position or writer's assistant position, those are important pieces in the writer's room. And so presumably you would want to meet with the showrunner to get a good, honest sense of how the room is run and not secondhand account from the EP or the line producer in that context. In terms of secondhand account, you can actually ask people who've worked with that showrunner and those EPs in the past. I'm sure you have it at the point where you're you know, trying to get staffed on a show and you're getting those meetings. Hopefully you have people who've worked with those people who know people who've worked with those people and you can ask them honestly their insight on uh, is this a good working environment or not. I've known many people who did not take jobs because of bad vibes, bad work environments that they've known thanks to other people who had worked with those people. And uh, it's not just something you can gauge only by the interview process. Yeah. And I know it's a tough world out there and it's sometimes it's hard just to get a job at all, but I think it's also important to know when to say no for your own well-being and uh, sort of long-term good. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree. This is something that we covered again uh, in the past. I'm a big believer in uh, standing up for yourself and understanding that sometimes the mental toll that a job is going to take on you is not necessarily worth the potential bump up. And last but not least, the other problem that we wanted to cover is that I'm getting a general meetings after general meetings, but there's no traction for actual jobs or my general meetings never really lead to anything more than that. Yeah, I mean, I think some of this is just that is the nature of general meetings. They are a meet and greet. They are a very first sort of introduction to an executive or a producer or whatever it happens to be. And you're basically just getting on their radar and being kept in consideration for things. And there really is no guarantee that it's going to lead to anything. However, there are a number of ways that uh, you can ensure or increase the chances of it leading to something more. The first one, I would say, is really, you know, bothering to delve into projects that are going on at that company and with that executive, the things that they're interested in, the stuff that they are looking for right now on their mandate, the stuff that the networks that they work with are looking for, you know, whatever they're developing, whatever IP they happen to have a hold on, and finding out about that and making notes about it and going away and sort of like looking it up and keeping in touch about it and offering, you know, little ideas and, and things here and there and keeping some kind of conversation going with the executive past your meeting outside of just where are you from and how did you start writing and also on the personal side remembering something about them too whether it is their hobbies their interests the kind of music they like relating back to that sort of personal connection that you made with that executive and then as you're going on and maintaining this relationship let's say the important part is checking in every now and then seeing what they're up to telling them what you've been up to updating them on your life calling back to those things both that personal connection and the ongoing business opportunities you might have with each other yeah i definitely agree that it is important, again, to be strategic about the way you proceed with those meetings. If you're getting those general meetings and it's a lot of meetings, first of all, that means that they're engaging with your material. That means that they like that sample that your rep uh, sent. That means that they like sort of the bio that they think you have. And then when you are meeting with them and you're pitching yourself, it's good to uh, have an understanding afterwards of, uh, like we said earlier, of how that meeting went and how positive it was, how negative, the good thing and bad thing. And when you're taking down the notes, uh, much like during that networking mixer that, uh, again, we mentioned at the top, 
you have an actual uh, traceable list of things you can follow up on. Maybe it's about circling back at some point with that executive about a specific project that they mentioned. You can ask, hey, I remember you mentioned uh, this pilot that you're developing. Do you have any auspices attached? How is that going? Is there a room? Or you can also be strategic about what they're covering. If they're an executive in, in current programming or development, you can ask them sort of like the areas that they're interested in and then tailor your samples and what you're working on with what they're looking for, especially if it's something like in development, there's no problem in following up with them, letting them know about the different projects you're thinking of writing or working on yourself. It doesn't have to be, hey, I've got the spec pilot, read it now, but it can just be, hey, I know you're huge into sci-fi and I've been floating about this idea centered around a space opera, blah, 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 and see how uh, invested they are in that idea. Or at the very least, if they are willing to grab a drink with you in the same way that you want to follow up with people, generally speaking, to keep that relationship alive. The other thing to keep in mind is that general meetings don't necessarily equate to projects on a one-on-one basis. So for example, if you meet with an executive at Sony and you really hit it off, it doesn't mean that you're going to be developing projects at Sony. However, it can mean that this executive may or may not recommend you to some other executive and you can sort of continue that chain of relationship and growing those relationships, especially if you realize and you learn at some point that, hey, they know this person at Bad Robot and I really want to meet with this person and you can ask either your rep if it works, but if it doesn't work, it's always better to get sort of like a first-hand recommendation to get those meetings. So you can always follow up when you're seeing them in person for drinks. Hey, I noticed that you're friends with so-and-so at so-and-so's company. I really feel I have a project that they'd be interested in uh, and presumably that you're not interested in. Otherwise, I would probably <laughs> present it to you. But are you able to get me a meeting or at least listen a recommendation or introduce me to this person for drinks? Uh, I'd love to pick their brain, et cetera, et cetera. And so general meetings are in a way almost like networking first dates where it doesn't have to lead to marriage. It can just be, hey, we're just sort of like dating around right now. We're maybe looking into expanding our business with other people vertically. Yeah. And the last thing I think to keep in mind with executives is that they're not always going to be at that company. And that's both a blessing and a curse in different ways. Because, uh, you know, if you've met someone at DreamWorks in a year or two, they might now be over at Sony or wherever it happens to be. So suddenly you get an opportunity to reconnect with them and take a meeting with them there and see what they're working on at this new place. And then also what you want to do at that point is make sure you're meeting with whoever uh, is replacing them back at DreamWorks at their old job and making sure you're keeping that alive there because you don't want to let the kind of flames of your connection with the previous company die because the only person you knew there has moved away. So kind of get to know everybody there and then follow them throughout their careers because execs tend to move around a lot and that can be good for you or bad for you depending on how you handle it. Follow them but not in a creepy way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. On that note, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E you will get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch. And we can keep producing an awesome show like this one for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 171. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. And I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. 
And what are we doing next week? Well, next week, we are going to be sitting down with Mike Scully, who is a long-term Simpsons writer, uh, is now co-show running the show Duncanville, which is executive produced by Amy Poehler. And uh, yeah, we did have to shuffle Mike's interview a little bit when I got stuck in Australia, but we will uh, be bringing him to you next week. Absolutely. And it's going to be a deep dive into show running, uh, kind of like a follow-up to the one we did with uh, Aaron Eli Colite. We're moving towards doing a showrunner series, sitting down with showrunners and digging deep into their process, especially in terms of staffing, who they look for, what they look for in samples, how they manage writers' rooms, breaking the episodes and seasons and so forth. So on that note, we'll see you next week with Mike Scully. And catch you then.